Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to elders past and present. This episode is about the entertainment industry's ableist exploitation of short-statured people in the early 20th century. When necessary in quoting historic newspapers, I've substituted the phrase the M-word for a highly offensive term. Other newspaper descriptions may offend. Listener discretion is advised. It's Thursday the 21st of January 1915 and at lodgings in East Melbourne, showman Frederick Hooper Jones puts pen to yellow notebook paper to denounce his star attraction, Hayati Hasid, aka the Mayor of Tiny Town. Fred Jones addresses his note to the commander of the Victoria Barracks Melbourne, writing, quote, Sir, Hayati Hasid, who is under contract to me as a small man performer, is, I understand, a Turk. He has given his intention of slipping away by boat and taking several hundred pounds with him. I have personally paid him hundreds of pounds, and his banking accounts are Savings Bank, Commonwealth, Collins Street, also Bank of Adelaide, Adelaide. I am an Australian and consider that this money should be made stop in the state. Would you make immediate inquiries as I understand he is on the point of withdrawing the money if he hasn't already done so? He is living at same address as myself, namely 539 Victoria Parade, East Melbourne. I considered it my duty to report to you and advise you calling before Saturday. A good time to call is before 10am or between 6 and 8pm. Signed, Fred H. Jones. Fred's letter reaches a Captain Jones, no relation, of the Intelligence Section General Staff, 3rd Military District, where it's stamped secret. 
With anti-Turkish sentiment increasing after the terrorist attack at Broken Hill at the start of the month, Hayati Hasid is now a person of interest to military intelligence. And they want him in their custody to answer questions about his activities and his allegiances. What Fred Jones wants is Hayati Hasid under control, unable to leave the state without permission, just to be sure he won't back out of their 102-show tour of Eastern Victoria that's set to start in just four days' time. I'm Michael Adams, and this is part three of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. Part four will go on general release soon, but it's available now to Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. Subscribing and supporting helps me to keep making this podcast, and it gives you early ad-free access to every episode, along with bonus episodes available nowhere else. Just like Hayati Hasid, Frederick Hooper-Jones is an obscure figure. Yet, if not for a quirk of fate, his name might have been known to generations of Australians. According to records found at Ancestry.com.au, Frederick Hooper-Jones was born on the 18th of March 1879 in Gawler in South Australia. His English parents had recently immigrated from Kent. Their first child, a daughter, had been born on the ship that brought them to Australia. After Fred, they'd have five more children. And this included Hooper Foss Brewster Jones, born in 1887, who'd become a famed concert pianist and classical and operatic composer. As far as the record allows, Fred Jones wasn't talented musically. But the kid was a dab hand at calligraphy, drawing, painting and writing. At the Stanley Show in 1894, Fred, who was then about to leave school, won prizes for his essay writing, penmanship, scale sketches, decorative Christmas cards and painted landscape scenes. So clearly Fred was smart and creative. He also had ideas about making money from new and exciting opportunities. First, it was bicycles, which in the early 1890s, as we've heard in previous episodes, were a huge craze in Australia. From 1896, the lad, not yet 20 years old, had his own shop in Adelaide, where he sold and serviced these wonderful machines. On Christmas Day in 1901, Fred married a woman named Ella Robinson. The couple had a daughter they named Marjorie the following year. By 1906, Fred had expanded into speedier new modes of transport, working as a director for the Empire Motor and Cycle Company. While his involvement with the business was to be short-lived, he retained an interest in those newfangled petrol engines that were reshaping the modern world. By now, Fred was also dabbling as a showman. In April 1906, he toured a concert party of artists around South Australia's York Peninsula. His performers included a lady singer, a conjurer and a comedian. But the big attraction was supposed to be his little brother Hooper. From age two, this boy had shown a remarkable facility for music and now, not yet 20, Hooper was already a virtuoso pianist. But alas, Fred's celebrity younger sibling had to leave Adelaide earlier than expected to commence studies at London's Royal College of Music. Nevertheless, Fred's show went on. A few months later, he was touring another set of acts, These were headlined by Charles Breton, the world's emperor of magic. Surely no one would want to miss a bit called Grim Giffen, quote, in which a grizzly bear plays an important part, 
and after devouring several people, they mysteriously reappear in most unaccountable parts of the hall. Like every showman, Fred produced florid press releases, and these were often reprinted verbatim in local papers. That quote we just heard was from the Port Pirie Recorder and Northwestern Mail. The article said the show offered another musical prodigy too, quote, With great difficulty and at much expense, little Bertha Jones services have been secured. This young lady, who is only 12 years of age, is considered by all critics to be the champion solo violinist in Australia. That was true. Bertha had recently packed out the Adelaide Town Hall and was an incredible violinist. But as for the great difficulty and expense, well, Bertha Jones was Fred's little sister, so securing her services might have been more a case of just asking her across the breakfast table as opposed to entering into protracted contract negotiations. Either way, Fred had a minor hit on his hands with his show and the company toured around South Australia and across the border to Broken Hill. But Fred was soon on to his next venture. This was a basement shop in the three-storey Moss Buildings in Adelaide. There, Fred sold phonograph needles, records and postcards. But disaster struck just before 7pm on Friday the 17th of January 1908 when Fred's store went up in flames. All of his stock burned. Fire crews arrived fast enough to save other stores in the building from any damage. Questioned, Fred said everything had been perfectly fine when he left the shop office half an hour before the inferno erupted. He just couldn't explain what had happened. Inspection of the smouldering premises revealed that the blaze had started in his office. Fred had been terribly unfortunate, and doubly so to lose all of his accounting books, invoices and receipts. So the world would just have to take his word for it when he said he'd lost £700 in stock. Poor Fred was only insured for up to £400. So once he got that payout, which adjusted for inflation is about $65,000, he'd still be seriously out of pocket. Presuming, of course, all of his stock had actually been destroyed. Good old Fred bounced back, and on the 5th of March 1908, this ad appeared in the Adelaide Advertiser. Quote, Commission agents to sell phonographs and postcards. Fred Jones, Royal Exchange, Adelaide. And on the 6th of March, in the Express and Telegraph, Phonographs, records and postcards at new address, Fred H. Jones, Royal Exchange, King William Street, Adelaide. If Fred was on the up and up, then he'd restocked very quickly. And this was especially clever given that from late January until mid-April, he was busy touring the state with novelty musician The Great Leslie and showing Bioscope moving pictures. So, had Fred pulled a scam? It's probably best not to rush to judgement. Instead, will stroll to judgment. Fred's ballyhoo for the great Leslie gives a solid indication of who Fred believed to be the star of any show. Take this from the Laura Standard on the 6th of February 1908. The headline reads, The Great Leslie and New English Bioscope Company. But the article begins, quote, This company appeared before a large audience on Friday last, despite the wet night. Mr. Fred H. Jones, under whose direction the company is, deserves great credit for the way in which he puts his performances on. The name is sufficient here to warrant always that a good program will be submitted. It was only after that that the great Leslie was even mentioned. 
While he was printing in his showbiz press releases, Fred had set his sights higher than regional stages. He was looking to the skies. In May 1909, Fred, his wife Ella, their daughter Marjorie and their new baby son Lancelot took the White Star steamer Suvik from Adelaide to London. There, they stayed with his brother Hooper. The purpose of Fred's trip was pleasure, but also business. The business, securing more motion pictures, but also to bring the first flying machines to Australia. 1909 was an exciting year in aerial innovation down under. As we heard in the episode, Australia's first UFO flap, the Commonwealth Government had announced a £5,000 prize for the best aeroplane design that could be adapted for military purposes. This meant that many creative minds were turning over the problem of motorised flight. And internationally, three mid-1909 developments in Europe foretold a new era of aerial adventure. First, Count Zeppelin had demonstrated the astonishing expanded capabilities of his dirigible balloons. Second, Monsieur Louis Blériot had been the first to fly across the English Channel, and he did so in his Blériot 11 monoplane, with the Adelaide advertiser commenting that this feat, quote, did far more to impress the public imagination than if the same number of miles had been covered in as few minutes anywhere over dry land. And third, the Rans Air Show in France had filled the skies with new planes and set records for what they could achieve including a 150-minute non-stop flight over 81 miles. On the back of all of these developments, the Adelaide advertiser reckoned that locally and globally, quote, When the future chronicler of aviation records its history, he will probably refer to 1909 as having been the year of its emergence from an embryonic into a living and practical form. Fred Jones had been in the right place at the right time. He'd gone to Rans and he'd met the world's leading aviators and aerial inventors and he'd seen them put their planes through their paces. Fred was convinced the Blériot monoplane was the best on offer. He thought it the simplest to maintain, the most manoeuvrable, the most commercial and the most cost-effective. So Fred entered into a contract with Monsieur Blériot to be his Australian agent. Putting his money where his mouth was, Fred also ordered two monoplanes for delivery to Adelaide. The first plane he was to receive was the 37th Blériot off the production line. The machine cost Fred around about £750, which is $110,000 adjusted for inflation. Writing home to the advertiser in September 1909, Fred said that once he returned and his Blériots had arrived, quote, I will immediately make Australian flight records. Frederick Hooper-Jones was going to be the first man to make a powered flight down under. Fred was determined to cover himself in glory, but he also said he was going about the greater good. In his letter, he set out the specifics of the Anzani engine his Blerio used and said there was no reason that similar motors couldn't be built right there in South Australia. And to help speed up local production, he'd be bringing with him other engines, timber and aluminium, along with working models of all the other planes that had been demonstrated at Rans. Surely Fred's munificence would spur on all sorts of wonderful experimentation. And for sure, his flight plans made news all over Australia. 
When he got off the RMS Otranto in Adelaide on the 9th of November 1909, Fred's study of aviation over the past few months had elevated him to the status of Australian expert. He was able to discourse at length about engines and explain all the reasons that Blériot's monoplane was superior to the Wright and Vizen biplanes. Fred was set to give a demonstration at Jubilee Park of the six models he'd brought with him. The event, to be held on the 11th of December, was advertised as the fun of flying, and it was held under the patronage of the Governor, the Commandant of the South Australian Military Forces and the South Australian Aerial League. 4,000 people turned out, but the flying was a fizzer. The Adelaide Advertiser reported the event under the headline, An Aviation Exhibition, but aviation was in sarcastic quote marks. While the size of the crowd had made it a little dangerous to try to fly a plane, one of the models didn't even have a motor, so it wasn't going anywhere. But no attempt was made to launch another plane that seemingly did have an engine. Quote, Small models of various flying machines were thrown into the air by hand, but most of them made but a precarious flight of about 40 yards and then fluttered ignominiously to earth. Fred's debut had been a bust. So could he prove himself with his full-size Blériot? That was, if it ever arrived. On the 11th of December, same day as the Jubilee Park disappointment, Fred received a cablegram saying that his first monoplane had only just shipped from France. Meanwhile, the wind might have already been whipped from beneath Fred's wings by other developments. On the 5th of December, 1909 at Narrabeen on Sydney's northern beaches, George A. Taylor, Secretary of the Aerial League of New South Wales, made the first heavier-than-air free flight in Australia. His wife Florence also went up that day, and their flying was witnessed by 100 people. But the Taylors took to the sky in a biplane glider, relying on the wind for lift, so no one had yet made a powered and controlled flight in Australia. Four days later, though, also in Sydney, an English race car driver named Colin DeFries took a Wright Model A biplane up about 15 feet and covered 100 yards before crashing back to earth. Now, there was controversy as to whether Colin DeFries had made a controlled flight. The new Aerial League, meanwhile, denied he'd even gotten off the ground. So, officially at least, the glory was still up for grabs. Although Fred's first monoplane was still in transit, three days before Christmas, he placed an advertisement in the Adelaide Advertiser that promised, quote, Blerio flying monoplanes, quickest deliveries, lowest indent quotes, deposits made payable to Messrs. Blerio Limited, Agent F.H. Jones. Under Fred's entrepreneurship, Australian commercial aviation was set to take off. Any gentleman or lady with sufficient funds might soon find himself or herself flying over South Australia. This was an exciting prospect. But Fred was also keenly aware that competitors were reaching for the skies. This included JNN Tate of Melbourne, who were hoping to get a right flying machine into the air. If the names JNN Tate ring a bell in terms of Australian innovation, that's because they were the producers of 1906's The Story of the Kelly Gang, which holds the title as the world's first feature film. With these notables nipping at his heels, Fred threw down the gauntlet in a public notice in the advertiser. Quote, 
I've posted a challenge to Messrs JNN Tate that I will fly my Blerio against their Wright machine during March in any part of Australia on a course agreeable to both parties. My machine will be here about January 28. On the 15th of January 1910, the Adelaide Observer ran an anticipatory article about Fred's soon-to-arrive flying machine. The Blerio weighed 496 pounds. It measured 26 feet and 3 inches from nose to tail. Its wings spanned 27 feet 7 inches. But as a sober reminder of the risks involved with flying such a machine, the very next item in this newspaper column was a report that a French aerialist had just been killed. This was Monsieur Leon Delagrange. He'd been France's third licensed pilot and been one of the stars at Reims. Paul Monsieur Delagrange had met his maker when his Blériot 11 had flipped and fallen from an altitude of 65 feet. 496 pounds of plane had landed on top of him and crushed his skull. He was just the fourth pilot in history to die in a powered flight accident. Fred was about to take ownership of the same model plane. Anticipation mounted, but Fred's machine didn't arrive on the 28th of January. Days passed. Then, on the 4th of February, Fred's Blériot finally turned up in Adelaide. A few days later, the Register newspaper reported this arrival under the headline, A Mammoth Package. The paper described the monster packing case that was, quote, more like a house. The article went on, quote, It is said to be the largest package of its kind which has ever been landed in this state. Picture it. 25 feet long, 7 feet wide, and 8 feet high. To construct it required 800 super feet of timber, and it cost 35 pounds. Fred unboxed the plane and fitted it together so, quote, readers of the register might have the benefit of a complete and accurate description. This article was written for an audience who'd never seen a plane before, and it gave a detailed account of its size, weight, dimensions, and construction. Quote, the engine is located at the head of a long, narrow, cage-like body, and the propeller is conspicuous from its outstanding position right in front of the machine. There were hundreds more words before the paper described how Fred was to attain flight. Quote, The machine is driven on its wheels at a speed of 40 miles an hour against the wind. The propeller increases from a rate of 500 to 1,000 or 1,200 revolutions a minute in the space of 50 or 60 yards, and everything is ready to leave the ground. Despite how solid the science was, the register's journalist was tremulous. Quote, I climbed up into the pilot seat just behind the engine and had explained to me all the control levers and the mode of steering the plane by the foot levers. I remarked that I would not soar higher at that moment for all the tea in China, whereupon one of the firm's officials emphatically declared that he would not make a flight for half of the celestial regions. I appreciated his antipathy to the clouds. One seemed so much safer on Mother Earth. Mr Jones, however, waved aside our fears, saying, Australians had as much pluck as anyone else, and plenty would be willing to make an ascent. The register remarked that, quote, Though commonplace enough to continentalise, aviation to the great majority of Australians has not yet emerged from the realm of fantasy. The newspaper outlined all the recent triumphs and tragedies, from Orville Wright getting to 1,200 feet with a passenger for 90 minutes, to, well, poor Monsieur Delagrange being flattened under a sister ship, to Fred Jones's flying machine. 
Now, all the excitement of aviation was about to start in Australia, specifically South Australia. The Register proudly told readers, quote, Adelaide is the centre to which the attention of every aerial enthusiast in the Commonwealth will be directed during the next few weeks. But even before this article appeared, another motorised aeroplane had arrived in Australia. Not a monoplane in Adelaide, but a biplane in Melbourne. This was a Verzen flying machine, and it had arrived with its owner, the world-famous escapologist and daredevil, Harry Houdini. The great man had come to the Antipodes for a tour, and if the conditions were right, he was going to fly his plane, just as he'd already done in Germany, reaching an altitude of 80 feet and staying aloft for 18 minutes. Despite the intense competition, Fred Jones didn't rush to get himself and his Blerio into the air. Why? Maybe he was nervous, and he had every right to be. He'd never flown, and no one in Adelaide could give him any guidance. All he had was the instruction manual that had come with the Blerio. He'd literally be flying by the book. But it was also in Fred's nature as a showman to make his plane pay as much as possible up front. So he entered into a lucrative contract to exhibit the monoplane for three weeks in the Magic Cave Entertainment Centre inside Adelaide's renowned Big Store Retail Complex. The Northern Argus reported Fred had been paid an exceedingly large premium, and it would later be revealed this was about £125, equivalent to almost $20,000 today. Fred was risking missing out on being the first person to make a motorised and controlled flight in Australia, but this way, at least if he crashed, he would have already recouped some of his expenses. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Have you done all of your Christmas shopping yet? There are only, insert number here, shopping days left till Christmas. To make things super easy for you, I've gone and written a new book called Hanging Ned Kelly, and it's a rip-roaring ride into the underbelly of colonial Australia, with a cast of characters you have to read to believe. From Ned's hangman, Elijah Upjohn, and his monstrous predecessor, Michael Gately, to a bevy of serial killers and absolutely crazed doctors and phrenologists, these shady sorts were too gruesome for the history books we studied in school. Hanging Ned Kelly is published by Affirm Press, an independent Australian company, so you'll be buying local. It's a beautiful hardback with plenty of illustrations, and it's available wherever books are sold. Dimmix, Booktopia, Big W, and of course your local independent bookstores. So, it'll make a cracking gift for yourself or someone you love. Okay, on with the show. On the 10th of February, the Adelaide papers were thrilled with what they dubbed our first aeroplane. But that same week, we find ads placed by Fred in the advertiser. Quote, Clearing sale, skates, Winslow and Brampton, films, 100,000 feet from half a penny per foot, electric and limelight plants, roll tickets from one penny per thousand, 
F.H. Jones, 50 North Terrace East, opposite Museum. Everything must go. Fred Jones was selling the means with which he'd made money these past few years. He was either sorely in need of cash or going all in on aviation. Fred gave private viewings of the Blerio to the Governor of South Australia, to members of the Aerial League and to the Auto Club. Tagging along, the Express and Telegraph newspaper described the Blerio as looking like a magnified horse stinger. Soon after, the Observer printed three photos of Adelaide's first aeroplane. In one, Fred sat in the cockpit, and in the others, he posed beside his machine with the local secretary of the Aerial League. These pictures showed a flying machine that was attractive to the eye. The wings, curved, round-edged and upturned, were canvas over timber, and the pilot used wires to warp them to control lateral direction. The cockpit area of the timber frame fuselage was enclosed in canvas. Otherwise, though, it was open, ending in a little fin-shaped tail, and the plane rested on three wheels. It really was like some giant moth that a man might try to master. But as a reminder of the dangers of failure, the same page had a photo of the late Monsieur Delagrange. Crowds poured into the magic cave to see the plane for themselves. But everyone really wanted to see it up in the air. The Northern Argus gave voice to this, quote, We all now tiptoe with excitement in impatient expectation of Mr. Jones' first promised aerial flight. Fred announced that this would take place on the 26th of March as part of a sporting program at Cheltenham. But first, he was going to conduct trials. As for the danger, well, as Blerio's Australian representative, it was Fred's duty to set the record straight about the death of Monsieur Delagrange. Apparently, his mistake had been to install a 50-horsepower engine when the Blerio was only rated for the 25-horsepower motor it came with. Citing the journal of the London Aerial Club, Fred said the French aviator had died because, quote, his machine was asked to do more than the designer intended it to do. Fred's aerial trials would be at Bolivar, 11 miles north of Adelaide. He'd been granted the use of a 400-acre piece of cleared land by a local named Mr A. Windsor. The Register newspaper reported that this weekend flutter meant that little Bolivar would, quote, claim the honour of being seen of the first successful aerial flights in the Commonwealth. The Blerio would have to be broken down, packed in its giant case, and transported from the Magic Cave to the testing ground. There, it'd have to be reassembled, and then broken down and put back in its giant box when not in use. That was because there was no other way to protect it from the elements. In France, don't you know, they had what were called hangars, and these were like big motor garages for aeroplanes. But the Register doubted the practicality in Australia of such big spaces being reserved especially for these flying machines. Yet Fred told the papers he did plan to hire huge marquees to accommodate his Blerio out in the field. After all, that's what Harry Houdini was doing over at Digger's Rest north of Melbourne. The advantage of a hangar or marquee, of course, was that the plane could be ready to go as soon as conditions were right. Fred's trials were to be carried out with the assistance of two motor engineers. These were Frederick Custance and Carl Whitbar. F.C. Custance was a 19-year-old English lad who'd come to Australia in 1906. 
A year ago, he'd made a name for himself by setting a motor racing record from Melbourne to Adelaide, covering the 598 miles with another driver, Mr G.G. White, in 20 hours and 6 minutes. That record still stood. Carl Whitber, meanwhile, was also a motor car engineer who'd become an aerial enthusiast. Now, while Fred Jones had publicly spoken of Australians having plenty of pluck when it came to flying, and while he'd publicly professed a desire to, quote, immediately make flight records, he actually decided that FC Custance was going to pilot the Blerio. Did Fred Jones lack nerve? Maybe he did. But FC Custance was also an experienced speedster and daredevil, so him flying the plane did make more sense. Of course, FC Custance had also never flown before. He'd be relying on the instruction manual. The Register printed a sample of this book, quote, Practice with the engine and the machine anchored, and a few days in driving on the wheels or semi-flying around the ground at half speed to practice steering, elevating, rudders and warping the wings. The Register reported the Blerio was taken for its maiden run on Sunday the 13th of March 1910 at Bolivar. But that was only after it had been put together, quote, the greater part of the morning was occupied in erecting it and preparing for the trial. What a golden opportunity was missed while this process was in operation. The air was still, not even a zephyr wandered over the fields. By the time the plane was ready, the conditions had turned blowy and flight wasn't possible. Fred Jones, FC Custance and Carl Whitber kept the flying machine assembled and ready in the hope the wind would die down. But, quote, Numerous spectators who had travelled from far and near by horse, cycle and buggy to watch the trials had to be content with viewing the stationary aeroplane. Fred Jones told the reporter that even European aviators did not go up in such conditions, apart from one daredevil who had. He didn't name him, but the insinuation was that this was the late great Monsieur Delagrange. At 11am they fired up the engine and FC Custance got into the cockpit. The register, quote, It required the strength of four pairs of hands to restrain her when the engine was opened out and the breeze created by the two-bladed propeller was of hurricane force. When it slowed down, F.C. Custance reached for his eyebrows and said, quote, Thought they'd been blown away. The engine at half speed, he then tooled around the paddock, getting a feel for the machine. Carl Whitber took it for a similar spin and, quote, a strong puff caught one of the planes and caused the machine to rise a few feet clear of the ground. But as she was heading for a rather nasty spot, power had to be shut off and she came to a standstill. Carl Whitber had just experienced a taste of powered flight. Not that it was of sufficient duration or altitude to trouble the record books. With the wind not playing along, that was it for the day. The register said that Fred and company would continue their trials over the coming fortnight. But then, on the 17th of March, Adelaide's Evening Journal was first with the amazing and triumphant news. Quote, At three o'clock in the morning, Messieurs F.H. Jones and F.C. Custance drove to Bolivar, where the Blerio monoplane had remained since last Sunday's trials, and at about five o'clock, Mr. Custance took his place in the pilot's seat. A few preliminary twists of the propeller, and the machine was underway at a good bat. 
It rose quickly, and using the fences of the paddock as a guide, the area was covered thrice in rapid succession, a distance of about three miles. The height of flying was between 12 and 15 feet. The machine was in the air for about 5 minutes 25 seconds, which constitutes a duration record for Australasia. It was also the first flight on a monoplane accomplished in Australia. After daylight, the paper said, FC Custance had gotten back into the plane for another go, this time hoping to set a height record. Quote, The machine started off in wonderful fashion from a 40 yards run, and quickly mounted to a height of 50 feet, which is the greatest elevation yet attained by a monoplane in Australasia. After travelling for about 200 yards, Mr Custance made a slight error in manipulating the elevators and caused the machine to descend suddenly head foremost. The undercarriage of the machine was smashed and the propeller broken, but the damage was not so great as appeared at first glance. None of the planes was broken and the main frame from the seat backwards was found to be intact. FC Custance had been lucky to escape with just a few bruises, and the repairs could be effected within about two weeks. As for those who'd seen this historic first, the Evening Journal told readers, quote, the flight was witnessed by several local residents who were astonished at the success. Asked how it felt when flying, Mr. Custance said he hardly knew he was off the ground. It was just a swift gliding motion, exhilarating, but not disconcerting. The Evening Journal's report ended with this, quote, Both the aviator and the owner were delighted with the success which had attended the trial. In fact, Mr. Jones was scarcely concerned at all about the damage to the machine, saying, that can be repaired without much trouble. A follow-up article in the Register the next day contained a much longer interview with Fred Jones and with Fred Custance. Fred Jones said, quote, When we took the machine out at 5 o'clock, there was a dead calm and the air was moist. This suited our purpose admirably. The machine was released, and after running 70 or 80 yards along the ground, it rose with a nice gentle sweep to a height of 12 or 15 feet. After doing the three miles in 5 minutes, 25 seconds, the pilot landed without any trouble. Custance, anxious to eclipse the altitude of 30 feet, said to have been obtained by DeFries in a Wright machine at Sydney, took his seat again and opened the engine full out. It took me all my time to get out of the way. She gave a run and two hops, entered the air at a very high angle and shot up 50 or 60 feet. At that height, the airship travelled 200 yards. The machine was still rising, and the pilot altered the elevating plane to straighten her. Unfortunately, he overdid it, and she dived earthward at an angle of about 45 degrees, landing almost head-on. There was a great crash, which attracted the attention of people a considerable distance away. Fred said these flights had been witnessed by Mr. A. Windsor, who'd given them the land to use, and a Mr. and Mrs. Sawyer, who also lived nearby. He went on, I think Custance will make an excellent aerial pilot. He's keen and has plenty of nerve and pluck. His first flight was like that of an experienced aviator. Fred said the Blerio was to be repaired by the well-known carriage and motor firm of Duncan and Fraser, who might also be able to fashion a new propeller, which were hard to come by in Australia. But the crash had put a dent in his immediate plans for a public flight. Quote, I intended to give a demonstration on March the 26th. That will have to be postponed. I desired to have some guarantee of its success in order that the public should not be disappointed. I will issue challenges immediately to all comers in Australia. 
A better ground and facilities for housing machines is badly needed, and I hope the Aerial League will do something in this direction. The machine is worth about £1,000, and the damage about £50. Fred Custance told the Register, quote, What does flying feel like? It's not much different to running on the ground, except you experience no bumps, and you have a sense of floating. The machine is very sensitive in the air, different to running along the ground. The engine made a great noise due to the absence of a silencer. That was emitted to economise weight. The first try was grand, and I alighted without a shock. Finding that the engine was running well, I determined to beat the 30-foot altitude which was said to have been attained in Sydney. I opened the engine up, and she went up beautifully. He went on. When I reckoned she was high enough, I tried to straighten her, but through an error of judgment, raised the elevating plane too far, and the machine shot downward, striking the ground head on. I had time to switch off before the impact took place, but the propeller was still revolving, and it was smashed to pieces. A cross member of the frame in front of my seat was carried away, and I struck my head against the petrol tank. The tank, made of thin brass, was dented, but I escaped with a few bruises and a headache. FC Custance went on, quote, Seeing I have never been in the air before, it was not bad to put up the first monoplane flight in Australia, and the first flight of any kind in South Australia, and duration and altitude records for Australia. That shows what can be done, and I intend to have another try when repairs are effected. The mistake I made would easily have been rectified by an experienced man, but I'll never make it again. It is rather a coincidence that 12 months ago to the day, Mr. G.G. White and I finished the Melbourne to Adelaide motor record, which, in spite of three attempts to reduce it, still stands. So Fred Jones had made possible the first motorised and controlled flight in Australia, and Fred Custance had been the man to take the plane into the air. Or had they? Do those interview quotes ring true to you? To me, they're certainly credible, given what the Register had already witnessed of the trials. There's detail, breathless excitement, pride in accomplishment, and acknowledgement of errors made, and determination not to repeat them. The plane was damaged, the propeller shattered. It had certainly been in an accident. Yet, the three witnesses weren't interviewed, and Fred Jones didn't provide signed statements as to what they'd seen that early morning. What is worth noting is that on Thursday the 17th and Friday the 18th of March 1910, the newspapers in Adelaide and elsewhere in Australia took Fred Jones and Fred Custance at their word. Yet, even as their words were being read on the 18th of March, their claim to fame was being eclipsed as Harry Houdini took to the air in his Vazan biplane over Digger's Rest outside of Melbourne. From 7 o'clock that morning, Houdini made three flights under perfect control, the longest being three minutes, and he reached an altitude of 100 feet. Houdini did this in front of nine witnesses, and his flights over the coming days would be captured by still and moving picture cameras. The history books were to record that Harry Houdini was the first to make a powered and controlled flight in Australia. But hadn't Fred Jones and Fred Custance beaten him by one day? On the morning of the 18th of March, hours before Houdini's flight, the Sydney Morning Herald rolled off the printing presses with an article headlined, Flying in Australia. It said, quote, 
the initial successes of two experimenters with a Blériot monoplane at Bolivar mark the entry of Australia into the world of flight. On their first trial, the Adelaide men left the ground for a few feet, and they have lost little time in taking to the air. In the circumstance, their records are very creditable, and promise well for Australia in the new sport. It is true the descent was disconcerting, but the flight itself was excellent, and the damage to the machine should not be hard to set right. Adelaide has every reason to be proud of the record established. Could Fred Jones and Fred Custance's claims be believed? Debate has raged ever since. Whether you believe they were first or not largely comes down to Fred Jones's character. But this century-plus controversy hasn't, to my knowledge, included what you're going to hear in the fourth and final instalment about Fred Jones's behaviour as a showman and in particular, his treatment of Hayati Hasid, the mayor of Tiny Town. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to part three of the four-part Forgotten Australia episode, The Mayor of Tiny Town versus Australia's Shiftiest Showman. Part four will be on general release very soon, but it's available now ad-free to Apple subscribers and Patreon supporters. By supporting or subscribing, you're helping me to make this podcast, and that includes paying for research materials, such as digitising the formerly secret National Archives of Australia military intelligence file about Hayati Hasid that forms the basis for part four of this episode. If you'd like to try an Apple subscription at no cost, you can do so via a free three-day trial. Apple and Patreon links are in your show notes. As always, thanks for listening and for supporting. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.